Well, hi everyone, and welcome to the Modern Cotton Story, sponsored by E3 Sustainable Cotton. I'm Jennifer Crumpler, Fiber Development Manager and Manager of the E3 Sustainable Cotton Program from BASF and host of today's program. So today, our program um, is the next in our series of podcasts um, that our listeners know that we're going to call Authors and Editors, Talk About Textiles and Sustainability. With this special series, um, we have been very, very excited and you know very privileged to be able to introduce you, our listeners, um, to different editors and writers from major trade publications throughout that textile supply chain, um, as well as authors of books about the industry. Um, and so to me, it's just been very fortunate and exciting as we've kind of jumped into with the podcast and other things um, to be able to learn from you know, those who are in the industry as experts. Um, so I'm also joined today by industry consultant, Bob Anishak. So Bob, how are things going today for you and you staying safe? Uh, yes, yes. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, Hurricane Ida is moving through the Nashville area as we speak, and it's just uh, right into really light rain at this point. So okay. doing, doing fine, doing fine. Well, good, good. Um, you know, we, uh, last year when we kind of started with some of the podcasts, our listeners may remember, we talked about, we had a hurricane that hit down in Southeastern North Carolina. And so I always get, um, you know, little, little sympathetic, very sympathetic and always anxious to make sure those who are in the path of the hurricane can, um, are safe. So I'm glad to hear. And, you know, last week I was out in Kansas and I got there and I, my mom, she was funny. She's like, well, you know, you be careful out there because you know, those tornadoes and you make sure you don't see any photos or anything else around you pay attention. So oh, wow. um, <laughs> that's great. That's yeah. Great. Weather and uh, mother nature. Sometimes they always are um, always fun to, to see what she has store in store for us. Um, but, you know, it's my pleasure today to introduce um, a longtime editor and writer in the cotton industry, um, Jim Stedman. He's the senior editor of cotton grower magazine. Um, and it's kind of funny. So, you know, listeners have heard me say I've been in the industry for about 20 years. So I feel like, you know, you know, Jim, everyone in the cotton world knows you as the editor of one of the premier cotton publications in the world. And for me, I also grew up, grew up reading and understanding and learning a lot about the industry from your writing. And, um, you, and it's, I'm excited to have you on here today. And some of our listeners uh, may be new to, um, you know, this ag space and some of that. So, you know, I was wondering, Jim, you know, thank you so much for being here. And maybe if you could tell the audience a little bit about your background. Well, well, thanks, Jennifer. I, I certainly appreciate the, the opportunity to be here and, and, and that introduction as well. Uh, I will hesitate to tell you how long I've been in the cotton industry. <laughs> Uh, or at least been around the cotton industry because some some folks will you know will immediately not listen to me anymore thinking I'm just a doddering old fool but uh, but I am living proof that you don't have to grow up in the cotton business or around a cotton farm to become part of this industry uh, Jennifer I think you and I talked a couple of years ago about our backgrounds um, I grew up in the mountains of East Tennessee uh, on a family farm outside Kingsport which is right up in that Tri Cities area uh, right there Virginia North Carolina and Tennessee. Uh, and I've just and I've, I have to recall now that at one point in my life uh, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, now, not that I was alive in all of those, mind you, uh, <laughs> Kingsport was a major hub for cotton spinning. We had Borden Mills there and mm -hmm. the railroad tracks uh, are still there going to where the mill used to stand. 
So uh, we had nothing to do with cotton at that point. Instead, we, we raised cattle all up and down the hills uh, of the farm and, and both sides of my family were involved in construction. So uh, certainly, you know, any after school and summer jobs were, were always available and, and strongly encouraged. Uh, I honestly did not set out to have anything to do with agriculture. Uh, I figured, you know, growing up on a farm was enough. Uh, and if I'd been halfway decent at math, I would probably be an architect today. Uh, but calculus and I did not get along. So I ended up getting a communications degree uh, at the University of Tennessee. And as fate would have it, my first job was as, a, as an ag news editor for UT's extension service uh, there in Knoxville. So I've been involved in agriculture, primarily Southern ag, uh, ever since. Uh, I spent a number of years working as a marketing consultant for a number of ag companies uh, and became deeply involved in the cotton industry through those contacts. Uh, and I, I will show my age. That goes all the way back to, uh, to Ring Around Seed in Montgomery, Alabama, back in the early 1980s. Uh, I've worked with, uh, certainly with uh, a number of seed companies uh, that you would recognize today. Uh, I was part of the uh, introduction team with, with Monsanto, now Bayer for uh, Bogard and Roundup Ready in the uh, in the late 1990s and uh and probably about 20 you know 15 20 years ago i circled back around to writing full time uh, and had the good fortune to join the cotton grower staff uh folks that i'd worked with certainly from uh, from other perspectives uh and was happy to join the group uh i think we've been doing some good work uh, uh continue to do some good work and and certainly here we are today yeah. And, um, you know, that's a good thing, uh, Jim. I was at a meeting, I think the, maybe the last meeting I saw you at, um, or maybe not, maybe it was a different one, but it was around that time and talking about being in the industry long enough. And one of our agronomists that works for us, um, Kenny Melton, he, um, he, he were talking about being in the industry and how long we're in the industry. And I was like, you know, BASF, our tagline is we create chemistry. And as long as we can keep creating it and they can keep creating hair color for me, I will not be able to show my <laughs> age to gray hair. So, you know, hey, we, we have a lot of things out there. Um, and, you know, and it's, and it's funny, Jim, because you mentioned starting out and, you know, being um, a different companies. And I don't even know if you remember this or not, but I'm going to have to go back and look at my archives because we were with, um, you know, some of the same companies. And you actually came and rode with me for... Um, I think it was up a day or two and we were here um, around North Carolina in some areas doing grower testimonials, working with growers. Um, and so I'm going to have to go back and see if I can find in my archives where we did some of that and we were on the same team kind of launching some of the stuff out um, the industry and work with you on that. So I'll never forget really you kind of helped me learn going through and as I was you know, young coming out of college, hey, you know, the way to ask questions and the way to do things. Um, you know, and, and how to maybe ask them a little bit differently. So it uh, was definitely an honor to kind of, you know, be able to have you to work with when I was starting out years ago. Well, and and it's one of the things that we've always, I've always tried to to keep in mind is, you know, there's got to be somebody else coming up behind us, you know, to do, to do this work. You know, we're not going to be, I'm certainly not going to be doing what I'm doing, you know, forever. Uh, you know, so part of, I've always seen part of my job is, is sort of edu helping educate and helping mold or direct mm -hmm. or, you know, help, help people get more comfortable with what they're doing. So yeah, I'm certainly glad to help you with that one. Well, you know, Jim, you do a terrific job with Cotton Grower Magazine. I think that's uh, a real testament to your uh, philosophy for educating people 
showing new people into the industry, introducing them. Uh, your writing is uh, really very clear and concise and, and informative for so many. And I also want to mention that uh, I've been in this racket long enough to remember when uh, Monsanto was a fiber company. <laughs> so, so uh, you and me both. <laughs> yeah, long before ag. Anyway, but um, also wanted to say that I've really enjoyed your podcast, The Cotton Companion, um, which. Uh, is is really super informative very very helpful uh you and uh beck had over over the years and i think you have a different uh cohort yeah, frank, frank giles is with me frank now. okay hey, you, mm -hmm. you guys do a great job it's really particular really really uh very well done but in particular i was curious about um any plans that uh or any anything any uh, particular items that uh, you like to cover in cotton grower Every month, are there any favorite topics that you, that you like to go back to, or perhaps cover on the podcast? Um, well, I think you know, Cotton Grower has been been around for seventy years plus, uh, and I think we've probably covered just about every every aspect of cotton production you can think of. Uh, and obviously, the bread and butter of any publication like ours is working with and covering farmers and their success stories. And and there's really nothing I like better been getting out and meeting meeting folks being on the farm with them telling you know and coming back and, and telling a good story uh, and and the industry obviously is is full of these good stories and I wish there were time enough time to get out and and, and visit with everybody on it but uh, unfortunately covid you know has kept us and everybody else confined for the last 16 months uh, we haven't been able to get out and, and visit with folks the way we wanted to. I'm um, kind of hoping that's going to change pretty soon because I know there's a lot of good good tales out there yet to tell. Uh, but because of that, we've kind of pivoted our coverage a little bit over the past year and have put a little bit more emphasis on some of the issues that impact the cotton industry. Um, there are any number of good resources out there uh, for growers to, to get information on growing and protecting and harvesting cotton. Uh, and we try to use our website cottongrower.com to, to carry those messages. But when you get to the, uh, get in the magazine, uh, which like any other magazine these days has fairly limited space, uh, we try to go a bit more in depth on, on topics like precision ag and technologies, farm policy, uh, things, <clears throat> excuse me, things that impact cotton. Um, and obviously sustainability is one of those. Uh, and how what happens on the farm level impacts, you know, what's what can happen up the supply chain and how what happens at the retail level can certainly impact uh, some things back down on the farm. So kind of kind of going into uh, a little bit. I don't want, I wouldn't call it investigative work uh, because it's really not hard to find, but just a little more detail into into topics that uh, that our audience might not have gotten uh, a whole lot of detail on. Well, again, you know, a, a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are in the, you know, branded apparel and retail space and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, ex uh, do you have a uh, example or two of, a, of the types of data that maybe you collect and provide on a regular basis? Whether it's the, uh, I know you do commentary on supply and demand reports and, right. you, and you bring in various analysts, uh, 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 from around the industry. I mean, is, is, is that the kind of thing that you're referring to? Yes, it is. Uh, trying to bring a, a lot of different voices, 
to the readers that uh, that they may not uh, they may not ordinarily hear or be able to uh, you know to know about. Uh, you know, we've got contacts obviously through the National Cotton Council with their folks in Washington. So we've got we've got some good inroads there in terms of uh, farm policy. Uh, there are any number of, of, of economists that we work with, both in terms of, uh, you know, farm level and uh, supply demand and, and things like that. Uh, there are some other folks within the industry, well-respected folks in the industry that, that we like to, uh, to, to visit with once or twice a year to kind of get their outlook for the coming year on, uh, on what the market may do uh, and things like that. And then certainly from a production perspective, you know, there are always innovations being, uh, being looked at, uh, some things in the research pipelines uh, to, help, uh, to help growers become, become a little bit more efficient, uh, things that, uh, that they can look forward to here over the next couple of years. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it's just, uh, we, we're trying, it's almost like you're just trying to collect as much stuff as you can and sift through it. Uh, one of the things that we do every year is we always publish the first acreage survey of, uh, of the, the, the new year. We always publish oh, that. Our, cool. Yeah, we always pub cool. always publish that in our January issue. Uh, the danger with that is if you have a really good a really good year for cotton, uh, everybody's going to tell you we're going to grow a whole lot more cotton than we did last year. Uh, <laughs> right. If you uh, if you've had a lousy year in cotton, they're going to go. No, I'm not going to grow as much cotton. So we uh, we survey our readers. We give them the opportunity to. Uh, th there's nothing absolutely scientific about it whatsoever. It's purely subjective. So we, we survey our readers, we survey the cotton specialists, we talk to other people in the industry and try to get a feel for where the acreage is going to fall the following year. And uh, so, yeah, we, we put ours out there in January. National Cotton Council comes out with theirs in February. USDA drops theirs the end of February, 1st of March, somewhere in, in that range. And then we go back and kind of compare to see how we did on it. Uh, I, this year, our, our number was like 11 point six eight million acres and the council came out and said oh, no nope, no nope, it's gonna be 12 million acres and then usda came out and said no we think it's gonna be 12.1 <laughs> and, and then you get down to uh you know the the planted acres report comes out and lo and behold is 11.7 million yeah. acres <laughs> there you um, there you so, go. Okay. You know, so who had to buy that round of drinks? I don't know, but I, I, I just, I basically put that into the blind, any blind squirrel can find an acorn category. Right. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, you know, um, you know, Jim, I think a lot of people within the cotton grower magazine, er, within cotton industry, really do look to cotton grower um, for a lot of information, um, whether it is acres, whether it is, hey, you know, um, and really that unbiased reporting and unbiased, hey, here's the data, here's the facts of what's happening. And, you know, a lot of our listeners, um, as Bob mentioned, are from up and down the supply chain for cotton, right. whether it's with brands, retailers downstream that we, you know, are lucky to partner with, whether it's merchants, meal, you know, it's just the whole supply chain. And, um, you know, I'd really like to know when you guys are looking at it and you've been in the industry for a while, what are you seeing right now as the greatest challenges that are um, being faced by the industry in the future? Well, if, if, if you go to the farm level and ask growers, they're going to tell you Palmer Amaranth is, you know, is the greatest challenge, uh, you know, and, and, and from their perspective, that's absolutely true. Uh, but I think when you, when you step back and take a look at the entire industry, uh, I think the biggest challenge is, is 
producing and marketing and, and kind of surviving in a global industry instead of uh, what most of our readers and what the U.S. audience would, would have always kind of considered just a domestic industry. Uh, you know, China's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go away. Right. Uh, they're always going to need a high percentage of the U.S. cotton that, uh, that we produce. Uh, we have to keep an eye on Brazil. They're going to continue to increase their cotton production. They've made improvements in their infrastructure, and uh, they can certainly produce and export cotton that's that's really on a peer level in terms of quality with U.S. and Australia. So uh, you know, and then you got India, you know, top producer of cotton that can certainly impact export markets. Uh, you know, so that that I think is, is sort of like the overriding challenge. You come down a little bit more. Is, and the big challenge for, you know, for cotton production is labor. Uh, it's, it's the reason we now have round module pickers and strippers. It's, it's why things like, you know, auto steer are becoming more important and why uh, autonomous tractors are getting a lot more attention uh, at this point. Why, why drones and robotics are getting more and more research dollars uh, for, for development. So we're, you know, quite honestly, we're simply going to see a whole lot more automation, automation and, and I think precision equipment come into this market here within the next decade. Uh, and then one challenge that's that's out there right now that growers absolutely have no control over, and I'm not sure anybody does at this point, is the ability to get cotton moved in a timely manner to uh, to foreign customers. It's uh, the current freight situation as it stands uh, with the ports and the, uh, you know, and, and the ships lined up 40 deep waiting to get in and unload. Uh, it, it, quite honestly, it's a mess. Uh, we've talked to folks with the American Cotton Shippers Association uh, who are in contact with a lot of folks in Washington with the Federal Maritime uh, Administration uh, and those folks. I just don't see it improving anytime soon. Uh, and soon by, I mean, like within the next you know, say within the next six months. So it's just, you know, it's it's a challenge. It's something that we've never really had to deal with on a large scale basis before. And uh, and we'll just have to work our way through that one. Yeah, it's no, a, we, um, it's, a, it's a mess. It yeah. is a mess and that logistics and shipping, you know, especially the last year or so, just kind of seeing how that's evolved where we're at and um, we live at in Southeast North Carolina. It's always interesting to me because we're right near a port and um, I never, you know, paid as much attention to it as I have the past year, um, you know, the bar, you know, the ships coming in, cargo coming in. We have a major port right here in Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really been interesting. You know, you kind of, you don't work in the space that, you know, you really kind of think in your silo. And we really spent a lot of time with E3 really saying, hey, let's make this transparent supply chain. And sometimes you, you forget like, okay, yep, there's a whole lot of logistics going into it. And I think you're exactly right. That is, um, something as an entire industry that is um, definitely going to be um, a challenge of how this all plays out. You know, and, and we got kind of a, you know, a micro look at it here in the Memphis area, you know, this summer when the, uh, when the, the I 40 bridge over the Mississippi mm -hmm. river was down, uh, you know, it was closed. We had uh, for repair and suddenly you had 40,000 vehicles that crossed that bridge every day having to find alternate ways to get across the river. Uh, traffic in Memphis was a mess. And, uh, you know, I mean, barge traffic was still going and, and things like that. But you realize at that point how something that you take for granted doesn't, you know, when it doesn't work, nothing really works smoothly. 
yeah, mess with one little thing in that with that oil machine and it can cause everything to um yeah. <laughs> kind of go apart. Absolutely. Jim, with all your background in cotton and ag, um, and this kind of feeds back to what you were just saying, really. H how have you seen the uh, agriculture business, the cotton business changed over the years? Uh, I know that's kind of a big question, but it is, it's, it's a big question. But but I think I think the answer is, you know, you, you can't if, if you look back over, you know, the last 40, 50, 60 years of cotton production, uh, I think it's safe to say this industry's always kind of had a reputation of being slow to change and, uh, you know, kind of set in its ways. Uh, to a certain extent, you're still going to find that a little bit, but it's certainly not as strong as it was 30 years ago. And I think a lot of that acceptance of change and willingness to, to move forward uh, came when we introduced biotech traits into cotton varieties. Uh, there in the, when, when BT cotton came in in 1996, uh, I would say it was an absolute game changer. Uh, and quite honestly, probably folks I've talked to that I was working with at that point, basically saying it, it saved the cotton industry in Alabama, Mississippi, and, and some of the other states after a really horrible worm year in 1995. Uh, then Roundup, that Roundup Ready and all of the weed management traits came in behind that, that just added to the, to make that change curve climb a little bit steeper and a little faster. Uh, I think cotton breeding has made a lot of contributions, obviously, to yield and fiber uh, to the point where growers now expect to see new varieties every year rather than, rather than, rather than we were doing 30 years ago, waiting three years for university trial results on, uh, on varieties uh, before we give it, they, we get a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Uh, so, and I think really the, the key to all that or the, the, the main point on that is if you go back and look at USDA's planted acres report that came out uh, in June, I think we're now sitting basically 97, 98% of all cotton planted in the U.S. has got a trait or one trait or more in it at this point. Uh, I think one of the other changes that you're seeing take place now is more reliance on data uh, among growers. Uh, I think we've seen some really positive growth on that. Um, growers are doing a really good job of blending their traditional production practices with, with analytics uh, to help them make, uh, make, make more, to make better decisions, make them a little bit more efficient and, and hopefully more profitable. Uh, COVID may have had something to do with, with that, although I think really and truly that trend had already started climbing before uh, before the uh, shutdown of the past year. So uh, those would be the biggest changes I've seen. Well, and you know, you mentioned it. Normally, Bob always mentions COVID um, on our podcast. So I think- Well, I'm Jennifer, it's your turn. It's your turn. <laughs> I guess I'm going to ask that, you know, kind of asking that question, uh, Jim. Um, you know, we have seen, whether it's COVID or, you know, affecting or COVID being blamed for affecting it or whatever it is, you know, it's COVID's kind of that, either the suffix or the prefix to a lot of situations that have happened um, mm -hmm. these days. And the cotton industry, you know, we've talked about some of it. It's no exception. So do you feel, um, you know, that the way that business within the cotton industry, whether it's at the farm, whether it's, you know, how cotton's consumed, how meals are making decisions, brands, um, you know, downstream, whatever that is, do you think they're going to have, they're going to be permanently changed that kind of supply chain, go to market, 
strategy. Um, do you think that's going to be permanently affected, or do you think this is going to be a, just a temporary thing that we'll forget about? Um, I think the short answer is yes, uh, and, and because realistically, COVID was was a major stumbling block for for everybody. Uh, you know, when you're locked down for a year or more, uh, you know it's it's difficult. But we, I think, it, all of us, me, you, everybody, you know, around the world, basically, have found ways to kind of keep lives and careers going. Uh, and I think we're we're probably more efficient in the long run because of it. Um, you go down to the grower level, and the ones I've talked to never really slowed down. Uh, they were outside doing what they do best. They they basically had no choice. They had to you know, they had to keep farming. Uh, but they learned they could still communicate with their local retailer and with their seed and chemical reps and the you know the extension specialists and all those folks. They just couldn't do it in person. Uh, and so because of that, I think that there are some, they've added some efficiencies into their everyday business that I think are probably going to be permanent. Now they've, they've learned the, the, the value of FaceTime. They've learned uh, you can, you can go to a meeting via zoom and, uh, and get the information and participate uh, without spending all day in a, you know, driving there and back. Right. So I, I think we're going to see that maintain as, as something as a permanent uh, part of their operations. From the consumer level, yeah, demand took a big hit. Uh, I think you're still seeing it to a certain extent at the, at the retail and mill levels in terms of supply. Uh, obviously, online shopping took off uh, like crazy. Uh, you know, Amazon, UPS, FedEx, others, you know, certainly made, uh, you know, did very, very well over the past year. Uh it, and in spite of the fact a lot of people have kind of recognized the convenience of, of online purchasing, uh, I think we're starting to see a slow, steady return to that in-person retail business. Because mm -hmm. uh, people people being people, you know, you, you like to get out and you like to see and you like to touch a garment or a blanket and, you know, kind of have that whole shopping experience, uh, such as it is right now. Uh, so I think, you know, from, from that perspective, some of these COVID issues are, are going to be temporary or are proving to be temporary. But even that, there's 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 some change involved that I think is always going to be with us. Yeah, and I'm that guilty shopper. I'll be honest. I, there's nothing more I like going into the store and like touching it. <laughs> and touching it and having that physical, being able to touch it. Okay, is this going to be? So, yeah, um, you know, I miss that a lot when, um, when COVID first hit and started ordering. And, you know, I found myself, like you were saying, getting excited to be able to go to the store and, you know, physically have that whole experience. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's definitely going to be something we're going to see kind of changing around. Yeah. You, you weren't one of those people. I've, I've, I've accused several people of becoming addicted to online shopping just because, you know, they, they like to see the boxes. Door every well, day. <laughs> and it was funny. I didn't say I was addicted, but I will say my husband and I, are, we might call our UPS guy Santa. Um, <laughs> I mean, we might have to keep him on the Christmas list this year, but you know, and it was funny because it was simple things instead of saying, okay, I'm not going to get to the grocery store today. I'm just going to order, you know, coffee or staples and I could get it ordered and get it there. And it was great. Um, and so, you know, it, certain things like that, um, you know, it was good and it was like, oh wait, I got a box today. Okay. And the day something didn't show up, you're looking like, wait, what? I thought I had something. Did I not have anything coming? <laughs> and so, you know, it definitely was a little bit of that excitement. <laughs> and that's what I think is probably going to be with us for, you know, 
from this point on. Uh, you know, it's there's always going to be a certain percentage of shopping that people will do online uh, just because of the convenience of it. Absolutely. Jim, a quick question about sustainability. Um, mm-hmm. Every time I, before COVID, would be in a room of 10 people, or after COVID, every time I was on a Zoom call of 10 people, I would ask them, what's sustainability? I would get 12 answers back. Okay. So, you know, uh, I'm curious, uh, uh, what is your definition of sustainability? Well, you know, like you, like you said, it is, it's, a, it's a tough term to define. Uh, but I think boiled down, if, if, <clears throat> if I had to take a crack at it, I would say it's, it's about taking care of the things you can, can take care of. Uh, perspective, your soil, your water, uh, print your op, and then be willing to share that information with others to the, you know, to help benefit the, the overall industry. Um, I remember a year, a couple of years ago, uh, president of a company that uh, that I'm going to that shall remain nameless asked me how they could introduce a sustainability formula for the for the cotton industry, and I I told him that you know that I appreciated what his uh, you know what he was trying to achieve, but the cotton growers really were already some of the most sustainable growers he'll ever find because uh, they were already doing nearly everything on that check on his checklist. Uh, so from a sustainability perspective, I've, I've always had the feeling the cotton industry has really led the way uh, on it and has really kind of done so for years when you when you look at all the other commodities that are. Uh, I, I can go back to, uh, you know, I'm going back maybe 10 years here. Uh, go back to like the cotton leads program uh, to some of these, uh, you know, very focused and, and successful programs like like E3, like your E3 sustainability program and the and the We Care Wrangler program and a lot of others that have, have come onto the scene. Um, and now we've got, we've got the U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol. Uh, it, there's some very ambitious goals there for transparency for U.S. cotton. Uh, it's already making some great headway in, in tying mills and retailers clearly back to the farm level. Um, there's still some work to do, obviously, on the sign-up. Uh, the enrollment program for that on the at the farm level, but I think they're they're making some slow progress there. Uh, but really and truly, I don't see any of these programs kind of competing against each other. They're, they're all kind of working together and and figuring out a way to to achieve their own goals for the for the better good of the industry. Yeah, and and that's a great point because I think that's um, I always say that I feel like cotton farmers, in my opinion, are some of the most sustainable farmers in general. And then cotton, you know, they're most sustainable farmers when you look at kind of the history of cotton and where it's been through. Um, so I agree with you. And there are a lot of initiatives, but I think you're exactly right. You know, they work well in the space they're working with. You know, so for us with E3, our growers have to purchase sustainable fiber max um, to be in our program. But, you know, I think it's great that as an industry, we have the option for those who are not purchasing it. And you're right. You know, those it's exciting to see that, hey, you know, an industry coming together and moving that piece forward, because at the end of the day, you know, it's about the grower. And um, that's where we've always focused a lot of our efforts and initiatives at. And, you know, and just kind of following up with that, you know, do you think or do you see that maybe all these initiatives are helping? Um, cotton to better compete with synthetics and, you know, really kind of help change the narrative of, or story kind of around that. Um, I think, I think you will, I think you'll see uh, 
some change or some, you know, some, some, some benefits to these programs in terms of competition uh, out there. Um, I think when, when you, when you step back and you look at, at, at organizations like Cotton Incorporated and, you know, and some of the, some of the, the universities and, and companies that are adding sustainability specialists to their staffs, uh, obviously this is not something that's going to go away. Um, and, and I think really and truly when you, when you look at, at this, the competition with synthetics, I mean, let's face it, uh, cotton will never be able to compete price to price in the long run with synthetics. It's just, you know, we, we may get to the point where the price is pretty close. Uh, but you know, let's, the, the synthetic companies can always do something to, to make it a little bit less, their product a little bit less expensive. But I think the value that we can bring for cotton through these sustainability efforts and, and, and show that value to the mills and retailers, I'm hoping will be enough to keep that competition really, really tight with synthetics, regardless of what the market price is. Jim, one last question. Um, as the industry is always changing, as we've been talking about in the last half hour or so, what plans do you have for Cotton Grower Magazine? Well, uh, we've, we certainly have discovered over the past decade that, that we are no longer a monthly magazine. Uh, we are a communications brand. And as such, you know, we're, we're fortunate that we still have a, a, a strong advertising base within the industry. And that's obvious. That's what helps put ink on the paper in terms of, of the magazine itself. Uh, but we've we've scaled back. We are not publishing every month. We do have uh, a couple of issues, combined issues during the year. So instead of 12 issues, we publish nine. Uh, simply because there, there are times of the year when it's just, uh, you know, we'd, we'd be producing a pamphlet rather than a magazine, and, and there's no value, uh, very little value in that. Um, but we do have a website, cottongrower.com, uh, and we update articles there every week. So that's really, that's our news outlet, uh, so to speak. Uh, we publish an e-newsletter every Tuesday morning. Uh, that goes to readers who opt in to receive it and are willing to share their uh, their email addresses with us. And about five years ago, as we've discussed earlier, we started uh, the Cotton Companion podcast really kind of as an experiment. We had no clue what we were doing when we started it, uh, but it has turned into a, a great outlet for us. Uh, we release an episode every two weeks and, uh, and just released our 100th episode back at the end of July. So, uh, you know, from, Congratulations. from humble beginnings, who knew that we would ever make it that far? Uh, <laughs> hey, that's but, sometimes the best things do. I feel like, you know, when Bob and I started this podcast, it was, what are we doing? And we definitely learned along the way and it's been fun. So yeah, it's, <laughs> always good in learning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, uh, but moving ahead. Yeah. There's some things that we would like to try, uh, you know, to, to add a little bit more value or a little, little something else to, uh, to, to help with the cotton grower brand in the industry. But the thing that, as you know, this industry as well as I do, uh, it has to fit the industry without being disruptive. Uh, and it's got to have some value attached to it. Uh, you know, there's some things in the pipeline uh, that we're looking at. We'll see if they become reality. So uh, just kind of stay tuned from that. Sounds good. Awesome. Sounds good. Awesome. And you mentioned, um, Jim, you know, and I, again, I thank you so much for being on and Bob, and I think we're about out of time. I know we could, um, chat a whole lot more. Um, but, you know, Jim, you did mention, so if our growers would, 
you know, like to reach you or have any, have any other information. I know you mentioned um, cottongirlmagazine.com, but any other way that our listeners could possibly reach out to you if they had any questions or wanted to make sure they were on the newsletter? Sure can. Um, I mean, we have, uh, we do have a Facebook page, which is at Cotton Grower Magazine. Uh, and and I, I monitor that every day to see if there are any comments or questions that come through for us uh, from that perspective. Uh, I think, or the, re- the easiest way to, to reach me uh, is just directly via email. And my email address is jstedman, that's J-S-T-E-A-D-M-A-N, at meistermedia, M-E-I-S-T-E-R-M-E-D-I-A, no space, dot com. Great. Awesome. Well, again, um, Bob, thanks for joining. And Jim, again, thank you so much um, for being on today. And I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us and hope that you enjoyed our show. Should you have any questions about the E3 Sustainable Cotton Program from BASF, please email me at e3cotton at basf.com. Also, make sure you visit us on social media on Instagram and Facebook at e 3 Sustainable Cotton. Thanks so much and see you next time.